You're listening to ReachMD, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable. I'm Dr. Maurice Pickard, your host, and with me today is Dr. Marge Cohn, Senior Staff Physician at Stroger Hospital in Chicago and serves as Director of Women's HIV Research. Additionally, she's the founder and former director of the Women's and Children's HIV Program at Stroger Hospital, one of the first women's HIV clinics in the country. Thank you, Dr. Cohn, for joining us. Thank you for having me. Dr. Cohn, how did you get involved in setting up the HIV clinic at Cook County Hospital? Well, I had been at County since um, 1976 in internal medicine, and I was in my general medicine clinic actually in 1987 when a very outspoken and loud woman knocked on my door and said, uh, I know that you're interested in women's health. Well, you should know that women really need their own clinic for HIV. And I go to the clinic right over there, but uh, down the hall, but, but it's really a clinic for men, and there's so few of us, and they don't really understand what our issues are. They don't understand that women... Um, have children, that women have gynecological problems, that we have emotional issues related to this disease that should be addressed. And uh, if you care about this, you really should do something about it. And Ida Greathouse was extremely insistent, uh, very articulate, and uh, she was right. So I uh, worked with some people to write for grants to have a special program that was sort of very multidisciplinary at Cook County Hospital where people who were interested in caring for women with HIV, we had a pediatrician, an obstetrician, uh, internist, an infectious disease doctor, we had a, a psychologist, case managers, social workers, health educators, pastoral care people, adolescent specialists, all came together to actually ensure that women and children and young adolescents and their partners who were infected with HIV at a time in this epidemic when we didn't have good medications could get the best care and determine what actually that would what would be the best care and it was sort of a very exciting time because in some ways no one else really wanted to take care of these people um they sort of weren't on nobody was banging down the doors to take care of women and children with HIV so we could actually develop within the county system uh, with this sort of extra resources that we had applied for a program that met these families needs and the concept of family-oriented care was very important because we noticed that women would bring their children the children were infected back and forth but they wouldn't come for their own visits so it was really important to say well when a woman, when a child has their appointment, the mother could have their appointment at the same time and ensure that they would be seen. If people needed disability or certain kind of entitlements, which would en enable them to come back and forth to clinic and get what they need and get a better housing situation, we made sure that the social worker and even the social security guy was in our clinic. So it was a one-stop shopping model for these families. And um, we noticed that though there was a lot of medical issues to take care of, there was also a lot of psychosocial issues to take care of. And we made sure that both of those areas were addressed. So the idea of not having to make these patients go to lots of different places, making sure that women and children were seen in the same place, and making sure that the gynecologic, medical, and psychosocial issues could be addressed in one site was a model that we developed. And it turned out that it was effective. And 
providing an ambience of caring for women who had a lot of issues like chemical dependency, enormous amount of violence in their lives, tremendous vulnerability of, of basically who they were in our society could be addressed in a reasonable way so that they would keep coming back to the clinic. Were they compliant? Well, you know, they weren't. we didn't have great meds until 1996. So as it turns out, the people who were really compliant with whatever therapy we put out sort of didn't do the best because we never had the best medicines. But what we noticed more was that for many of the women that we were seeing, they would come back to our scene, to the clinic, not always at the right appointment, sometimes a few hours later than expected, sometimes not even the day they were scheduled, but they did come back. And that allowed them to be there when we did get good medicines and allowed them to feel connected to us. And they were honest about whether they had or hadn't taken medicines, whether they needed something, whether they were having safer sex, whether they were still using alcohol or drugs. So that sort of sort of environment where it was okay to say what you were doing allowed us to connect with them and give them medications that worked as soon as they were available. So has there been a change in the attitude of the patients that you see in the clinic? Well, there's a difference in the way women have the virus transmitted to them now versus then. In 1987, 75% of the women we were seeing used injection drugs and were infected through that method. Now, in 2007, 75% of the women, 80% of the women we're seeing have HIV because they've been infected heterosexually. And some of them are partners of people who've used drugs. Some of them are just partners of men with HIV. Drug use, though, still an issue in terms of non-injectable drugs, some alcohol use and some disinhibition that comes from using drugs. They're not injection drug users themselves. The other thing we've noticed is that there still continues to be a vulnerability that the women have that we saw in, in the late 1980s that we still see today. HIV, of course, can affect anybody, but it seems to affect, as Jonathan Mann, who was the head of the World Health Organization in the 1990s, it seems to affect the most vulnerable members of society once it's within that society. And the poorest and the most disenfranchised are the people who are infected with HIV. And we still see that. So therefore, I, I still believe there's an enormous amount of hand-holding and sort of resource allocation that is required in order for women to get the best HIV care. If you've just joined us, you're listening to ReachMD, channel for medical professionals. I'm Dr. Maurice Pickard, your host, and today our guest is Dr. Marge Cohn, who runs a large clinic at the Cook County Hospital, Stroger Hospital, for women with HIV. Most of the patients that you see in your clinic, are they in a single are they single parent families? Uh, I would say yes. There there certainly are some partners that are there, but I think many women who became infected, some of their partners have died. They're no longer with those partners because of concerns anger about how they got infected. And then, of course, there are families that have actually stayed together and are dealing with this virus together. Many of the children we see are um, in families that usually have, some of which have, yeah, I, I would say the majority probably have one parent family. There's often a grandmother involved as well, though. There's the next generation that is very helpful. There's sisters, there's aunts, there's uncles. It is rare at this point that we don't have families that have support from other members in their extended family. A long time ago, that was less true, but I think now we have gotten over a significant amount of stigma in our country, and we do have support for many people with HIV. That's why I was going to ask you, that it sounds like they are willing to tell those around them 
what disease they have and rely on them for their support system. Right, and we do find that those people who do disclose for in general and are able to get that support and feel part of their families do much better. Do you have children in your clinic who are HIV positive? Oh, absolutely. Are these children who have gotten their disease from their parent, from their mother before we had adequate medication? Yes, and just to emphasize that point, since 1999, there have been no children born to a woman with HIV who has been in care in our clinic during her pregnancy. And there's about 40 women a year who are HIV-infected and pregnant each year. And since 1999, none of them have passed the virus on to their infants because they've all taken medication, notified the labor and delivery suite upon arriving that they are HIV-infected and need a certain medicine by vein at that point, have given their child the syrup for the next six weeks of the first six weeks of their life, and all the children are are negative and are are doing fine. It's really a special moment in terms of preventing HIV transmission. I know you have experience in Africa. Would you say that's the same experience you've experienced there? Not at all. I mean that that's that's the real disparity that we are able to provide in a country that has a low prevalence, enormous amount of resources to prevent, which is good to prevent HIV transmission from mother to children. But in Africa, if you take all of sub-Saharan Africa, less than 10% of the women who are HIV infected have access to antiretroviral therapy during their pregnancy. There's efforts to increase that number, but right now it's not enough. In Rwanda, where I work, there's an enormous amount of resources, more than in most countries, and the percentage is probably about 35% of women get who are infected and are pregnant access antiretroviral therapy. And the good thing about Rwanda is that women access it at about their 28th week of pregnancy and take combination therapy, which is the most, in terms of evidence-based medicine, way to prevent transmission. And it's the kind of um, need that we have all over Africa. And I would just want to say that it turns out that we would need about $12 billion a year to provide all of the care we're talking about in developing countries. So it costs about $12 billion a year for everybody to get the therapy, antiretroviral therapy that they need, all the women who are pregnant, people who are in care, children, etc. And we're not providing that. We as a whole, the world, is saying that we don't have enough money to do that. It's a priority issue, and hopefully we'll change our priorities soon. And you're using that figure based on the current incidence but is it possible that the incidence is growing in certain countries? Incidence is probably going down. I think there is an enormous amount of efforts that have taken place in many, many countries. I don't think the um, some of the ideology of our government that is put out to reject condom usage and support abstinence is helping that incidence to go down, but many countries are sort of educating about appropriate prevention messages, including it in family planning and getting the message across. But we still have a very long way to go. So you would say there's a certain tension between our U.S. government's policy and the medical community's policies. Oh, absolutely. The evidence, some of our the government's policies are not based on scientific evidence. And it's particularly sad when it's responsible for people dying in countries to have evidence not attended to. We've been talking about Chicago, but I know you've taken that experience to Rwanda. Could you tell us a little bit about WE ACT? Women's Equity and Access to Care and Treatment, we abbreviated as WE ACT, 
is a international group who have attempted to ensure that women and girls have access to HIV medications and prevention treatment. And we were particularly uh, moved by the Rwandan women leaders of associations who asked for fast-tracking of HIV medications in 2004, 2003, 2004, when they saw that women in their associations were dying of HIV when they didn't have access to medications, even though the men who during the genocide had raped them were getting medicines while they were in jail. So we were uh, had the opportunity to go to Rwanda, talk with these associations, have focus groups with the women who had HIV, and we've been able to develop a care system in Rwanda of three clinics, which now sees about has seen about 5,000 people with HIV, including children, and uh, started about 1,500 of them on antiretroviral therapy. And we continue to work at perfecting a system where issues of food, uh, mental health therapy are available as well as antiretroviral therapy. If we want to know more about WEACT, how can we contact you? Well, you could go log on to www.weact.org or you can email me, Marge Cohen, at AOL.com. I want to thank Dr. Marge Cohen, who's been our guest today, and we've been discussing HIV both in the United States and Rwanda. I'm Dr. Maurice Pickard, and you've been listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD, the channel for medical professionals. Thank you for listening.